So I'm a scientist. And I'm not, but I'm curious about science. She asks a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. And it's always fun for me to explain complex science in understandable ways. So So we we made made a podcast. podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome back to So I Married a Scientist. I'm Corey. And I'm Mel, and it's Christmas. It is the holiday season. It's the holiday season. This whole episode, whenever you say something, and I know that it's part of a Christmas song, can I just start busting out in a song? Oh dear, that seems like a challenge. So I have to avoid all of those instances? Avoid all of those instances. Oh gosh, this is going to be very difficult. That's not one, but that would be an example of how it works. Great. Okay. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas. I'm going to have to keep my responses very short, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, no, don't do that. I don't want you to censor yourself. If, if that's going to cause problems, then we won't do that. All right. <laughs> I will do my best. It's the holiday season. It is. And Santa Claus is on his way. Okay. You want me to stop doing that? Well, it's going to make a different kind of flavor to this episode, for sure. <laughs> But what do you have for us this week? You know what? What's that? I've been contemplating the holiday spirit. Okay. And I want to know if there's any science to it. Okay. Behind the holiday season? No, the holiday spirit. The, hol- the holiday spirit. Because you okay. can be in the holiday season and not have the holiday spirit. Okay. Yeah. You can have the holiday spirit if it's not the holidays. I know some people really get a kick out of celebrating Christmas in July, and that's their thing, and they love it because mm. they love how Christmas makes them feel inside their hearts. Okay. And I want to know if there's anything to it scientifically that may help us understand joy. Okay, the science of joy. The science of joy. That's a good topic. I'm a pretty joyful person. Okay, yeah. I think. But I I think we should try to define joy first before we do anything. Define joy. Yeah. How do we define it? Okay, so we're defining an emotion. Is it an emotion? I would say that joy is an emotion. It's an emotion. Well, that's like the movie Inside Out. Joy is an emotion in the character in the movie. It's a yeah. spoiler. It's not really a spoiler. That's not a spoiler. Yeah. Joy. Okay, so if joy is an emotion, then it is seated in the chemical life of our body somehow. Correct. Yes. Emotions have chemical signatures in the brain. Okay. Is this why some people really can't or have trouble experiencing some emotions like joy because of their chemical stuff going on in their body? Right. So everyone has different compositions of the neurotransmitters that are responsible for eliciting a response. And they also have different compositions of receptors that respond to those neurotransmitters. So it can be one of two things. Your composition or your concentration of those neurotransmitters can go up or down, or you can just have higher or lower levels of the actual receptors that respond to those neurotransmitters. All right, we got to break all that down because I'm not quite sure I understand what that means, but that is very interesting. Because a lot of times, you know, the holiday spirit is a good example you know, people are like, why don't you just get into the holiday spirit? And maybe that's chemically difficult or impossible for some people. Could be. Yeah. Well, we're in that situation. We're equating the holiday spirit with joy. So, okay. So emotions are in our body and they're related to neurotransmitters 
for the two, most part. Yeah. Two questions. What are neurotransmitters and where are they? Yeah. So neurotransmitters are chemicals that are produced primarily in the brain and act on other parts of the brain. When we to, say chemicals, yeah, are we talking like bleach or like no dish soap? No. Like what? People use the word chemical an awful lot these days to talk well, about everything. So what? What? It, what do you mean when you say chemical? A molecule. A mo- Okay. We're that talking has about- some sort of physiological function in the brain. What do you mean by physiological function? It acts on another portion of the brain and it elicits a response. Okay. How does it do that? Because there are receptors that recognize that neurotransmitter and then say, okay, we have to activate these particular processes to respond to that. In the case of joy, you start feeling things like excitement or your heart, you know, starting to race a little bit. And I think even your your body temperature tends to elevate slightly. So, you know, there's a lot of physiological stuff that goes on, but it's variable depending on who you are. And there are a lot of different factors that influence what you actually feel. All right. So your brain creates something called a neurotransmitter or it's already in there. So neurotransmitters are what go from one neuron to another. What's a neuron? (laughs) So a neuron is the primary cell in your brain. It's the neural activity cell. Okay. What does it do? It takes information from one element of your brain to another element of your brain or all the way down into your muscles and other systems in your body to influence change. So neurons do a lot of stuff. Yes. They're very essential. Okay. (laughs) If you didn't have neurons, you're in big trouble. You're not alive. You're not alive. Correct. So you got tons of neurons in your brain. They're hanging out in there. Yeah. So the neuron creates the neurotransmitter? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends. Well, that's not very helpful. Yeah, that's science. (laughs) All right. But in the case of joy, Mm -hmm. the neurotransmitter, where does it come from? There are multiple neurotransmitters. Okay. Where does the... Okay, so joy has to do with multiple neurotransmitters. There are a lot of different neurotransmitters that contribute to the things that we associate with joy. Okay. So the neurotransmitters go from a neuron and then they go to something called a receptor. What's a receptor? A receptor is like a docking port for the neurotransmitter that then creates this like cascading effect of signaling pathways that then stimulate other things to happen. Oh, I like this metaphor a lot. Okay, so one so one port, your neuro your neuron port mm-hmm. like loads up a little ship. Yeah. Full of good stuff. Sure. And sends it across the little ocean of your brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like I like tiny things, so this is making me very happy. Yeah. And then it docks into a neuro uh, into a receptor. Yep. And then they unload the ship. Yep. What's the ship in this metaphor? Well, it's the neurotransmitter, but is the ship. Yeah. But what's in the ship? Does the uh, metaphor these are fall just apart? Molecules. At this point. Okay, just molecules. Yeah. All right. Then they go to the receptor mm-hmm. and then they, they unload the ship yep. and then it goes throughout your body and does different stuff. Yeah. That's great. Okay, I, f- I feel like I'm tracking with this. Okay. Do you feel like I'm understanding it? Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it is very complex. So, let's back up for a second okay. because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how much science actually knows about the brain. And the brain itself is infinitely more complex than most biological systems. And I heard it recently stated that 
we probably, despite all the research and all the really good efforts of neuroscientists, we probably only know about 10% of the full capacity of what brains do and how they operate. Yeah. So still very much on the surface in terms of our understanding. Now, the other side of that is we're talking about joy right now. About 90% of the research into emotions goes to the negative side of it, right? So you're looking at things like depression and anxiety and those types of things because you want to develop therapeutics that can combat those illnesses, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so only about 10% of the current scientific research into emotions goes toward the happiness and joy side. So You would think that there would be a big market for happiness and joy. But I guess is the right. idea that like you get rid of depression, anxiety, and Correct. like that's what joy is. Joy is left once you get rid of that stuff. Right. So a lot of what we understand about joy and happiness comes from, okay, we see when these neurotransmitters are absent, we get higher depression and anxiety. So the idea there is, okay, if we just add these back, then we can get more joy and happiness. That's interesting. Well, and it's interesting too, because I think a lot of, there's a lot of positivity stuff like self-help stuff out there on the market that if you just change your mindset, then you can have access to emotions like joy. But I don't think a lot of, there's a lot of common knowledge about the chemical or like physiological aspects of how that actually works. But to what degree can our thinking and our mindset actually start triggering our body to create some of those neurotransmitters that we might be lacking. Like, for example, like I saw a study recently on gratitude that came out by a major research institution and that gratitude, like the practice of gratitude and being thankful can actually start to lift your mood over time. Yeah, there have been a lot of studies into this, actually. And I read a study recently where just smiling can release some of your neurotransmitters that impact joy and happiness. Smiling's my favorite. So just like forcing yourself to smile has a positive impact on your overall demeanor, even if you're in a bad mood. You can actually just smile, and then that will cause an upregulation in some of these neurotransmitters. That's creepy. A little bit. (laughs) Telling people to smile when they're upset. You can kind of, yeah. Smile when your heart is aching. Okay. Smile even though it's breaking. Do you know who wrote that song? No. Charlie Chaplin. Nice. Who struggled with depression his whole life. Wait, didn't he just not talk when he was on screen? Well, he was a silent film star. He, but he also was a songwriter. Talk. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know how many songs he wrote, but he wrote that song, which is interesting. But he, you know, talking about basically how comedy was tragedy for him. And that song is phenomenally beautiful. Very cool. Yeah. Smile when your heart is breaking. But All he right. knew. He knew. He knew before that study came out. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So joy. So sometimes we can do things that would increase our capacity for joy. Our, and not just like our emotional capacity, but our our physical and chemical capacity. Yeah. There are things we can do. Correct. But only to an extent? Yes. So some of this is seeded in your actual genetic composition, but there have been studies that have said that like keeping close personal relationships is actually a better indicator of your overall joy and well-being than your actual genetic makeup. Wow. Okay. So isolation can do more damage than like having a lack of some chemical in your brain. Right. That makes sense. And some of the personal relationships will increase the neurotransmitters that you're feeling. Wow. Really? Yeah. That's pretty incredible. So, so if I 
a kind of generally a joyful person, does that mean that I'm genetically predisposed to be joyful or does that mean I have good friendships or both? Both. Both. So yeah, this is a lot of the area where a lot of this happiness research is focused. So you may have heard like a baby was born happy and that's actually a real thing in terms of if your prefrontal cortex is a higher activity level when you're a baby, you cry less and you tend to be a little bit happier. So because of that prefrontal cortex activity, which is just a portion of the brain, they've seen that you can technically be born happier. So some babies are just more content with being quiet and not crying and all that kind of stuff. And that seems to be linked to this activity. I was a very unhappy child. Okay. Well, baby baby in particular. I had colic for like six months. My mom like basically pulled her hair out because I wouldn't stop crying. (laughs) So... Apparently, if you're not born a happy baby, you can still be a happy adult. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. There's a lot that, yeah. you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be like that for your whole life. What part of your brain is the prefrontal cortex? It's the part of your brain that's right in the front. So if you went directly through your forehead, you would be in the prefrontal cortex. So the story Phineas Gage is coming to mind. Are you familiar with story. that one? Okay, so I lo- you learn it in like Psych 101. So it's like it was like the, early, the earliest um, case study where like really early psychology and neuroscience could see a difference in someone's demeanor because of an accident. So there's this guy named Phineas Gage in the 1800s who was a super joyful, like happy dude. And then there was some crazy freak accident where like a railroad tie went through his temple, like through temple to temple, like some insane, you know, accident where he survived somehow with this crazy brain injury but after the injury, he almost fully recovered, but he was like a different person. It was like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, hmm. where he was like super, super grumpy and angry all the time, not just because he was in pain, like it actually changed his personality. So that would be the prefrontal cortex that right. that tie went through. Yep. So if something happens there, then you lose a lot of your ability to produce and feel those neurotransmitters that make you happy. So it's producing and feeling. So it's like well, on the... Yeah, again, there's a lot of them, and there are many different sources and activities of them. But I'm just generalizing as that being one of the most important sources. Yeah. Well, what I mean is like the body has to put them out, and the body also has to be able to read them, right? Because it's the sending and the receiving. Correct. You so need if both. Some, you need both. So if something's up with the sending, or they're just not there in your body to begin with, yep. that's the problem. Yeah, so you could have all the receptors in the world, but if you don't have the neurotransmitter to receive, then you're not going to get any activity. Or you can have all the neurotransmitter in the world, but if you don't have the receptors to recognize it, it's not going to have any activity. That is fascinating. Is this why A, antidepressants work because they give your body neurotransmitters that your body can then receive in some cases? Yeah, they act on a lot of different things. They can either influence the neurotransmitter production or the receptor side. Okay, wow. They can influence it. How do they influence the receptor side? Yeah, I don't know the specifics okay. about the molecular biology going on, but theoretically you could increase or decrease those receptors to get the signals that you want. All right, let's go back to babies for a second because <laughs> um, I'm, as you know, I'm mildly obsessed with baby Yoda. Yeah. And every time I see him on screen, I just have an involuntary reaction. Yeah. Like I, I will squeal. 
I'll be like, oh my God, like that or like, and I've talked to many other people who have this same exact involuntary reaction. I, I physically can't help it. I can't help not giggling and smiling when I see him. Yeah. It's like something takes my body over and it, the emotion that I feel is joy. Okay. So is there something to that? Like is joy produced in my body when I like see a really cute baby or a puppy or something that makes me really happy? Yeah. You're probably releasing neurotransmitters in response to that stimulus. It works really well. Baby Yoda is really cute. Baby Yoda is my, is my my joy drug. But it's funny because yesterday we watched with my sister and she had the exact same reactions. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this genetic? <laughs> Maybe. Could We're just be. supposed to love Baby Yoda. Yeah. I can't help it. Yeah, apparently your whole clan has this reaction. Yeah, my whole family. Yeah. So, so when... So when you're a child, when you're a baby, yeah. like what does that do for you if you're, if you're born a happy baby or something? So I'm not so sure that the long-term effects are all that well known in terms of the difference between babies that are really colicky and babies that aren't. Um, one of the things that we do know about is how much stress and anxiety you encounter before puberty will influence how you're able to respond to stress and anxiety later on in life. Whoa. Yeah, so it seems like if you grow up completely without stress before puberty, you are much less resilient to stress and anxiety as an adult. So almost like dealing with coping with stress is almost like a muscle that you have to exercise early in life. Well, yeah, so you kind of just imprint those pathways to deal with it a little bit better. Now, obviously, if you go to the extreme and you have really traumatic experiences, that's a negative. But it can be just as bad to have no stressful experiences. So somewhere in like the moderately stressful uh, situations, those tend to have positive impact later in life. I've been watching a series of web episodes on Facebook with a, a Facebook channel called Born Different. It's just stories of people who were born with, you know, genetic mutations or aberrations or things like that, that they have learned to cope with. And I, I've just been amazed at over and over these stories of the most resilient people who are dealing with really difficult things. But one of the most common thematic elements of all of these videos I've watched many of them uh is the bullying 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 and it it's interesting that even some of these these people who've dealt with like extreme bullying they have become that much more inspirational as an adult and that much more resilient it it, it seems like it either makes or breaks you mm. yeah I wonder if and this is not to excuse bullying at all or to soften its effects but I wonder if that's why kids tend to bully each other the most like in that puberty pre-puberty stage because maybe they're trying to like toughen each other up or something like that. I don't know. It's an interesting theory at least. So back to joy. So so are you saying that, that resilience is maybe linked to someone's ability to have joy later in life? Yeah. I mean, you would be more impacted by stressors and anxiety as an adult if you didn't kind of tolerate yourself to some levels of stress as a child. That's really fascinating. I mean, this is all really complex. So it sounds like this is a very nature and nurture thing. It's our experiences in life and what we've gone through and, and our relationships and our, yeah. our memories just as much as it is our, the chemical parts of us. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I think it's so difficult to study this because if you're studying genetics, it's very easy to find people who have very consistent genetics. If you're trying to find a population that's representative for your study of these types of processes, it's very difficult to match both the genetics and the early childhood upbringing to kind of make those experiences 
and the genetics all line up so uh, you can have a representative study. To control all those variables. It's a lot of variables to have to yeah. control for in these studies. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So let's dig into those neurotransmitters. Sure. I would like to know what exactly they are and what exactly they do. Yes, you'll probably have heard of a lot of them. The most commonly thought of and most directly associated with happiness neurotransmitter is dopamine. Oh, yeah. And dopamine has a lot of physiological effects from things like heart rate and kidney function and sleep and just general mood and attention span stuff to pain processing. And it's been associated with a lot of disease and adverse effect type conditions like schizophrenia and hallucinations and obesity, Parkinson's. There's a lot of things that go into it. Even like ADHD has some clinical applications because Ritalin actually boosts dopamine in its treatment. So so you, you definitely need dopamine. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah. So I hear dopamine talked about right now in the context of social media and how every time someone like hits a like button or likes your thing or every time you read something interesting on Facebook, it's like a little hit of dopamine yeah. for a lot of us in the same way from what I've read that slot machines work. Mm-hmm. And I recently heard a study that a lot of times it's the near miss that provides a higher shot of dopamine. It's like the I almost got the 777 on the jackpot. I almost got the jackpot that creates the highest like burst of excitement or adrenaline Hmm. or dopamine in our systems. So, but I wonder what that's doing to us neurologically to have these tiny little hits, these tiny little injections of dopamine all the time. And I see this as someone who's on social media constantly. So, I mean, I'm probably, am I frying my brain? Like, am I? Um, Not necessarily. It depends on the frequency and the level of effect. Okay. One of the things that, tends to happen if you have too many of those or too high levels like constantly you can actually decrease the number of receptors that you have oh my god so you actually build a tolerance to it and then if you don't get more and more like bigger and bigger hits then you actually feel less so it's an it's an addiction that can cause you to feel like more numb to everyday life right is that what you're saying yeah you know in very extreme cases but yes I think I've started to notice that like when I try to take time away from social media and just sit and like look at the trees, I feel bored and numb. Like I don't, I, I have a harder time have finding a sense of wonder for everyday life and the mundane things of life hmm. with the more time I spend on social media. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I also find that this is so anecdotal. I'm sorry. This is not very scientific, but I also find that like if someone posts something and it's just like a silly little thing from their everyday life, And I'm like, oh, this isn't interesting enough. (laughs) Oh, my God. I shouldn't tell this to my friends. Any of my friends that you're listening, I totally find you interesting. It's not that. It's just that I more expect to be impressed and I more expect to have like a high level of of adrenaline or something when I watch something. Like that's my expectation now. So then now everyday life feels more flat. Hmm. But I wonder if that has to do with like my dopamine levels. I wonder if I've been like messing with my brain chemistry. That's a little scary, actually. I, I think I can understand now why people want to take like long-term breaks or fast from social media. So it, it has an addictive quality, but that's because our body does need it. Yeah, right? I mean, dopamine's good. It's just, you know, if you have too much of it for 
artificial reasons, then you can decrease your receptor count or sensitivity. That's amazing. Okay, dopamine is number one. What's the second neurotransmitter? So the second one you've probably heard of is serotonin. The sleepy one. Sort of. Sort of. Okay. Uh, it influences emotions. It has some impact on appetite and either even like motor and cognitive function. Oh, wow. But it's the precursor molecule of melatonin, which is the sleep-wake cycle internal clock. Oh, molecule. I didn't know they were linked. Yeah. So serotonin gets processed into melatonin. Oh, So if you have low serotonin levels, you tend to have really messed up sleep cycles and you have higher rates of depression. What causes low serotonin levels? Yeah, I think there could be a number of reasons, but you know, if you're not able to produce it, then you have low serotonin levels. I mean, this is so interesting when you talk about it that way. It's like, you know, some people can't produce insulin, so they have diabetes. Right. Other people can't produce serotonin, so they have depression. Yep. Like, it's the same idea. It's just idea. a, you know hormone or neurotransmitter molecule just like any other in your body it's interesting though because like diabetes isn't stigmatized like depression stigmatized sure right i mean that's a whole can of worms but i'm really glad that awareness about mental health and the actual causes of things going awry in our brain are getting more you know awareness and traction yeah there's a ton of study into it for sure yeah all right so dopamine serotonin melatonin right yeah although melatonin is more related to sleep and internal clock function yeah, but if I don't get good sleep, I'm not a joyful person. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, okay, what else? So the third one that's produced kind of alongside dopamine and serotonin is oxytocin. The and love hormone. Is it a hormone? Yeah, it's a hormone. But they've since renamed it a little bit to the cuddle hormone. Really? Yeah, because oh. it's released when you snuggle and socialize. So when I cuddle with Benny... I get a little boost of oxytocin. Yep. Oh. And it is important for things like childbirth and the, forming the connection between mother and baby and all that kind of stuff. So when I cuddle with Benny, if I'm if I'm like conscious of cuddling with him and I'm like making an effort to like enjoy it, is that produce more oxytocin than when I'm like subconsciously just kind of on the couch like hanging with Benny? I'm not sure. That that's an interesting question. If you have yeah. to be like aware of it for it to have its full impact or not, right. I think it goes back to like the gratitude thing. Fascinating. Okay, oxytocin. So, and animals experience oxytocin too, right? That's yeah. how domesticated animals. It's it, not just people. Show affection. Yeah. Oh, Benny, do you love me, Benny? Do you chemically love me in your brain? He does. He told me with his eyes. Yeah. He lifted his ears a little bit. Yeah. He knew. <laughs> All right, so dopamine, serotonin, melatonin, oxytocin. What else we got? Yeah, so another one is the endorphins, which I'm sure you've heard of. Oh, yeah. And that's just a generic class of molecules that is basically, it means self-produced morphine. What? It, so it's similar in structure to opiates. Whoa. And this is why opiates have such a strong and powerful reaction on your brain in terms of things like pain reduction and, you know, overall tolerance levels because they use similar pathways to your normally endogenous endorphins. How many endorphins do you have in your body? Oh, I don't know what the actual numbers are. I just know that it's a class rather than a specific one molecule. So I actually thought that dopamine and serotonin and all those were endorphins, that they're different. So I think they're thought of as a different class of stimulation. Another thing. Because they act on different receptors. Oh, okay. So they're just like 
general like happiness and well-being and they reduce pain. Yeah, so your endorphins are primarily responsible for pain reduction. Oh, I didn't know that was their primary function. So yeah, they are produced typically when you're involved in really strenuous activity. So if you have a lot of physical exertion that could cause pain, then you produce endorphins. So that's, that's like why a runner's high. Well, so it was thought of as the runner's high component, but we've since found another class that's more directly related to the runner's high. Ah. This one more just dulls the pain. Interesting. This, and this is why people are recommended to exercise when they are struggling with depression, right? Because it kind of like balances out those brain hormones and creates endorphins. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Well, it makes it extra, probably makes it extra difficult with people who deal with chronic pain or have like some sort of illness that prevents them from really moving around a lot. And then they can't really give themselves natural ways to get those chemicals in their brain. Right. So what's the deal with runner's high then? Yeah. So recently we've discovered a newer class of molecules that we think are directly related to the runner's high. And they're called endocannabinoids, which you've probably Wait, that sounds heard familiar. Of. Right. <laughs> Wait a second. So these, Where is this going? Yeah, so these are actual molecules that your brain produces that are very similar to the molecules that are in the cannabis plant. So your brain produces these same molecules, but do they... Similar, yeah. Similar molecules. But they go to the same receptors? Correct. Interesting. Yeah, so the reason why you know, all of these cannabinoids have an effect on you is because you have receptors in your brain that recognizes them. If you didn't have those receptors, then you wouldn't feel effects from any cannabinoid products. Interesting. All right, we're going to leave that right there and move right along. Yeah, we don't have to go into more detail. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's research out there if you're interested there's in There's a that, lot of research. Um, should I start running now is the question. Because well, I, I hate it so much. Yeah, I mean, physical but... activity definitely does increase... You know, the good feeling neurotransmitters and hormones in your brain. Yeah. So there are very positive effects of that psychologically as well as physically. What about laughing? I know because I've heard that that exercise in general does increase these hormone levels. But when I feel the most joy, I'm laughing at something. So does laughter produce these chemicals or does it more respond is a part of the body's response? It seems like both. It seems like both, right? Yeah. It seems like this positive feedback loop kind of thing where if you start with one, you get more of it. So if you're in a, in company that's laughing a lot and having a good time, it tends to pass on to other people as well. This is just a, gen a feeling of general goodwill and, and health. Yeah. yeah. I once asked my grandparents, how they managed to stay f married for 50 years. And my grandma said, we just laugh at stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like that was her answer. It's a good answer. That was the secret. It's just like having a sense of humor, you know, cause life is hard sometimes. And when you're able to laugh at it, you know, you, you like increase your resilience. It's not just a frivolous thing. You're actually doing stuff in your body that helps you cope for sure. And helps you st stay close to joy. Yeah. So, uh, are there any other neurotransmitters that we should know about? Yeah, so there's one more. Okay. It's called GABA. GABA? GABA. Okay. Yeah, all capitalized. I think it's it's definitely Never know, heard an of acronym this one. for something. Yeah. Uh, and this is the anti-anxiety molecule. Oh. So this is what is increased when you have like Valium or Xanax because oh. it's linked to calmness. So it like 
removes the anxiousness. I've been reading about how social anxiety is super on the rise, especially among teenagers. Yeah. Like it's a huge epidemic. And I, I don't say that lightly. I mean like people dealing with social anxiety like by the thousands or even millions. Mm-hmm. Lots of undiagnosed people who deal with just horrible anxiety and how it really impacts people's lives. You Definitely. Know? And I wonder, is this something that we're only now testing and 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 following as a social problem or is are we actually increasing in numbers for anxiety in the modern age yeah so i definitely think our awareness and understanding of the underlying causes is definitely higher and you know it's more on the radar of of people but i think the inputs like the social media and all that kind of stuff that are influencing how we connect with people and in some ways making it a less personal less close interaction is contributing to that as well yeah, because you said at the beginning that like one of the most direct components of this is just having close interpersonal friendships. And if social media is making us feel more isolated, yeah, then that would contribute, right? Yeah, if we're only interacting with our screens and not other people, then it's a big difference. So really, that <laughs> the, one of the secrets to joy is just getting out and being with other people, sure. like in person. Yep. And maybe cuddling. Yeah. All right, so your body on joy. When all of these neurotransmitters are floating around, being created, sent out through the neurons, received by the receptors, sent to your body, what happens? Yeah, so it affects a lot of different physiological effects, but things like increased heart rate is definitely related. Mm -hmm. The blushing response is related. Oh. The butterflies in your stomach sensation is related sounds like the holiday spirit yeah to me. so there's a lot that goes into it santa's got red cheeks for a reason that's right he's a joyful guy yeah yeah but there are also a lot of health consequences as well so bad consequences well good and bad so <laughs> there's bad ones well not related to happiness but related to the lack of happiness okay gotcha okay that so makes more sense i was gonna say we don't want to tell people to be careful with being joyful no <laughs> So, yeah, an interesting study was started in the 1930s by Harvard. And so very forward thinking, basically took a cohort of middle-aged men and wanted to see what the effects of satisfaction and happiness were on their long-term health prognosis. Oh, I've heard about the happiness study. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard about this. So they looked at a wide range of social classes and IQs and you know, very different genetic makeups and all that kind of stuff. And what happened to their surprise was the people who were generally most satisfied at age 50 correlated to the healthiest individuals at age 80. Oh, interesting. So out of all of these health effects and different socioeconomic factors, the one that seemed to be the most related to long-term health and wellness was happiness and satisfaction. That is so interesting. So like, so people who were satisfied and, and generally joyful at age 50 right. were much healthier later in life. Correct. It makes sense to me, but they, they found like a chemical link between the two? So they didn't find the direct cause and what tied all of these individuals together. It was just in this study, in this poll, the people who reported being the most satisfied at age 50 tended to correlate to the healthiest at age 80. Are they also tracking generational ties? Like if they started the study in the 1930s, are they looking like the children of children? 
there has been some effort to study that in terms of can you pass on happiness and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know how far that research has gotten. Interesting. But so, yeah, so you know, the kind of motto that came out of this study was that genes are nice, but joy is better. Interesting. Yeah. But that's really hopeful, though, that you can kind of buck your genetics if you kind of are dealt in not such a great hand by practicing satisfaction and joy in right. some ways or doing things that can boost your sure. your practice of those things. Wow. That's yeah. So and on the other side of that, you know, you have things like depression being associated with heart disease and increased severity of diabetes and other illnesses, whereas happiness can actually directly boost immune function. Really? So one of the things that they've seen is happier people tend to respond much better to the flu shot than unhappy people really? in terms of the actual number of antibodies that are produced and all that. So your Whoa. immune function protection levels are actually better if you're happier. That's incredible. I had no idea how important this was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It has a lot of physiological impacts throughout yeah. your body. Yeah. So like from your kidneys to your blushing. And your heart. And your heart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it sounds like then we can make some recommendations for people if they want to boost their sense of joy. Yeah. So there's a lot of research right now and focus on what types of activities can actually boost these positive neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. And just a couple of examples, they've actually found that your endorphins, so those pain tolerance Molecules, molecules mm -hmm. are increased and stimulated by acupuncture. So if really? you see some people who, or if you heard cases where people have, you know, been really reliant on opiates for pain reduction, uh -huh. and then they switch to acupuncture, that can actually be a really great alternative because you can boost these endogenous opiate-like molecules instead of relying on chemical opiates. That's encouraging. That's very cool. And then I mentioned that GABA molecule, the anti-anxiety one. Yeah. That tends to be stimulated by yoga. So oh. if you, you know, get that tie between yoga and calmness, that actually makes sense biologically. Yeah, and yoga is based in mindfulness, a lot of it. So, and it was really cool. One of the uh, the leaders of the mindfulness movement is a monk named Thich Nhat Hanh, who you've probably heard of, wrote a lot of wonderful books uh, but he, his whole thing was being mindful as like you would in yoga, like being mindful of your surroundings and being thankful for, you know, your life and, and being, um, calm and meditate kind of in a meditative state and a, a very present state. He said, you can do that while you wash the dishes. Like there's no reason why you can't practice that, not just in the yoga studio, but in your day to day life and just the little mundane things. And the example he uses is one of, in one of his books is, um, he remembers eating a cookie as a child, a little tiny child, like an eight-year-old child. He's just sitting, and he had this one little cookie, and he, he said he took like, he would take like 45 minutes to eat his little cookie. He would just sit there and just enjoy it and just try to get as much joy out of it as he could. And so he talks about the cookie of his childhood. That's the, the thing he uses in his book, the cookie of my childhood. How can I get back to that? That childlike wonder, that utter gratitude, that fully present being aliveness and just take my time and enjoy my life. That's mindfulness. It's not anything more complicated than that. And that was how he practiced joy. And it's, I find it really inspiring, you know, that you never grow out of that need to wonder and to be inspired by what you're, what you're doing. But it makes sense that I think if a lot of us find life overwhelming or despairing, you know, because of 
what we see in the world. We have all this ac access to all this knowledge of like world events and political events and and horrible things happening that you know people in previous generations before the internet didn't have to know all this stuff all the time. If being in the present moment sparks anxiety because the real world, the present moment, is overwhelming to us, then it makes sense that it's harder for us to connect to the present. Yeah, definitely possible. Yeah. But we still need to do it. <laughs> right? So mindfulness, yoga, acupuncture. Yeah. Surrounding yourself with friends. Yeah. Other things that tend to boost neurotransmitters, these positive ones, include things like maintaining close relationships, walking in nature has a positive effect on these levels, just petting a dog or a cat, you know, so anytime we're feeling sad, we can just go pet Benny and that, that should help us. There's a tradition in, in Japan called forest bathing. Like you take a bath in the forest, you just oh. walk through the forest really slowly and just enjoy it. I believe it. Yeah. Nature has a very positive impact on a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing that I found really interesting was I mentioned before forcing yourself to smile. So that whole phrase <laughs> like turn your frown upside down might actually boost these neurotransmitters. When people say that, though, I just want to smack them. Like, right? Leave me alone. Yeah. Don't tell me. Don't tell me to smile. Yeah. So maybe <laughs> don't tell other people that. But if you think of it personally, you know, <laughs> just smiling when you're feeling a little down might actually help. Interesting. This is giving me a new appreciation for people who struggle with joy. You know, someone who is very lucky to, for it to come naturally to me. But I, I don't think I ever really thought that much about how my body just might be predisposed to it. Sure. And that's a that's a type of privilege, you know. So, but I do have a lot of friends who like, you know, deal with anxiety and depression, and I, I think they're very courageous for being open about that. And I think it's good that we talk about it because a lot of times it's not people's fault. You know, yeah. it's just something that happens. Well, also letting those people into your, you know, struggles can actually strengthen those personal relationships that can actually help you improve. That is a very good point. Yeah. So letting people in. But for a lot of people, the holiday season is a, is a really hard time because they're dealing with depression or grief. A lot of people grieve during the holidays. It's a very hard time because it's supposed, you're supposed to be happy. It's yeah. a time when you're supposed to feel joy. And if you don't, it can feel like there's something wrong with you. Um, we didn't even touch on grief, but grief is a big reason that yeah. people can feel like they're, they don't have access to joy. Um, but maybe those things can exist simultaneously, you know, like maybe we can grieve the loss of someone or something while also letting ourselves be in the moment and be thankful for what we do have, you know, like it ha doesn't have to be one or the other because our health and well-being does depend on practicing joy to the best of our ability. Sure. Right. Yeah. Another contributing factor that we didn't really touch on is the length of day during the holiday season. Oh, gosh, yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot less daylight, and, and that can lead to higher depression and those types of things as well. Yeah, there's so many factors. Well, thanks so much, Corey. This has been so informative. Thanks for answering all my questions. Sure. I have a new appreciation for all of this. Uh, hey, if you're listening and you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear about your story with joy, how you experience joy, what works for you, and uh, especially during the holidays, uh, you can email us at soyamarriedascientist at gmail.com or you can go to our website, soyamarriedascientist.com and get in touch with us. We would love to hear from you. And for everyone who's listening, we wish you a very happy holiday season. We hope it's full of love and warmth and you're surrounded by family and friends. And we just want to send you a great big happy holidays from us at Soy Married a Scientist. Happy holidays. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. Music by Lemonfest. Logo and marketing by Cambridge Creative Group. Edited and produced by Corey and Mel. 
See you next time.